Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We are available beyond the FM dial. You can listen to us. Stream us right now at RadioNorthland.org. And if you uh, happen to miss this episode or you missed like the first 5, 10 minutes, whatever, don't worry. You can go to the archive. It's at RadioNorthland.org. The Wrestling Memories page is there. With ten, uh, ten, We're going into our 10th year here with uh, interviews, memories, and such. And a guy who was uh, on board uh, for a lot of those Wrestling Memories and uh, I'm so glad to have him uh, with us this week. Uh, yes, uh, he's part of the team, always has been, always will be. Uh, pro wrestling author and historian George Shire. And George, uh, uh, it's good to have you back and uh, ready to do some uh, wrestling memories. And we have got a main event of, uh, of a guest today, man. Hey, it is good to be back here after a little bit of an absence, Glenn. And you're right. I, I've actually forgot 10 years since we started wrestling memories. Uh, and when I think back to all of the interviews that we've done and all of the wrestlers that we talked to that are no longer with us, oh my God, it's just sad. But it's fun today because we are not going to be talking about someone who has left the planet. No, no. We are talking about someone who's living the life. I tell you what, we, we got this book. Uh-huh. And this, this is going to be a good one. You called it a main event. Absolutely. I want to bring in our guest today. John Arezzi, and we're going to talk about his Matt Memories book. John, good afternoon. How are you? Wow, thank you for that great intro. How are you guys? We're doing good. Well, absolutely. We're doing fine, man. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. We get your book, and I, I had alluded to you this morning. I talked with you just for a few moments, and I thought, man, I just wonder if I've ever run into John Arezzi in person. You know, I have attended WFIA uh, conventions back in the day when they were our internet life, along with fan club bulletins. And I have attended Cauliflower Alley for, oh my gosh, about 17 of the last 20 years. And I said, Did I, how could I miss this guy when we have so many mutual friends? And it, getting this book and reading the stories that you tell us in here, and I hope you're going to share little bits of them here today, this is a great story of a great fun life as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's been an interesting ride, and I think the reason that we haven't really bumped into each other, of course, back in the WFIA days, I attended my first uh, WFIA convention in 1974 when I was operating the Freddie Blassie Fan Club, as a uh, young 16-year-old, uh, won Fan Club of the Year that year and um, uh, Best Monthly News Bulletin. And then I went to uh, about four consecutive WFIA conventions, um, 74, 75, 76, 77. I think the last one I went to was in Knoxville. And then I kind of got out of the wrestling business uh, for uh, a period of time, many years, and I went back in in 1989, stayed till 96, uh, and then left again and came back in 2018, and 2019 was my first CAC. So we uh, have been passing each other like ships in the night, George. Very, very definitely. And some of those years that you just mentioned about the WFIA uh, some of those years, I was I was at uh, wherever the reunion or the convention was. Uh, boy, I tell you what, John, fans today, they don't they don't have an idea about how much fun that type of an adventure was in the day when we went to those conventions. We'd go into a different territory every year. 
the promotion would usually work with uh, the WFI committee and allow us to have some access to the wrestlers and put on a great card. And, of course, the fan clubs. You mentioned Freddie Blassie. I ran a fan club for a guy named, boy, I tell you what, Raymond Torres. Does that sound familiar to you? (laughs) Raymond Torres. uh, Raymond Torres. Him and his famous brothers, Enrique and uh, Alberto. Yeah, they were, they were great. Um, but yeah, it, it, those were fun, fun times. And the CAC, uh, boy, you, you said your first one was 2019, is that right? Yeah, that was my first one, yeah. yes. Okay. Well, I was, I was attending those from 1999 up until about 2013, so about 13 or 14-year run. I missed a couple mm-hmm. years. And then was back again. Uh, that was a, it's a great organization. I served on the board and was an executive director for a number of years. And it was great working with Nick Bockwinkle and Lou Fez and Red Bastine and sitting with Killer Kowalski when he's drawing cartoons on the table during the business meeting and just all kinds of fun stories. So I'm sure. Listen, tell us about, uh, you know, and I want to tell you something about your book. I, I started out reading the book, and the first thing I saw, John, is, you know, this is this could be me. I could be starting out telling this story about discovering pro wrestling and becoming a fan and being in awe of some of the wrestlers, the way you talked about them in the early years. And then, of course, you get that moment when you start to become sort of an insider with them and they start to respect you or they start to, to understand that you're there to, you're on their side back in that kayfabe era. And that wasn't easy to do back then, was it? Not at all. I mean, it was very, very closed. And um, meeting Blassie when I did uh, as a teenager and getting backstage access for the first time and, and then just my progression into the business, it really wasn't until I had uh, developed a um, friendship with Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard, Oh, he, yes. kind of, he kind of embraced me, and I started, a, when I was in college in 1975, I started the very first rendition of Pro Wrestling Spotlight on my college radio station in Boston, and uh, Ernie was based there, and, uh, uh, you know, he provided access for me at the Boston Garden, and, and then I got to know, you know, other guys like superstar Billy Graham back then, and uh, the Valiants, and Lou Albano, uh, and slowly but surely, I was uh, brought in and, and, and respected, although, you know, kayfabe was so prominent and they they still didn't really totally embrace you. And and uh, really, it wasn't until, um, you know, I wrestled a couple of matches, which I'm sure we'll probably get into, was a stupid mistake I did. Um, and uh, it really wasn't until um, I left and it came back in 89 where... I had total access to uh, many of the locker rooms, and I started doing the inside uh, the inside of the business radio show. So, uh, yeah, my journey has been a roller coaster ride in wrestling, and, and of course, everything else that I got involved with. It was interesting when you mentioned Ernie Roth, because uh, at the Boston June 1972 WFIA convention, it was in in Boston, and I get on the elevator at the hotel coming in, I'm coming in off my, from the airport. I get on the 
on the elevator at the hotel. And who am I on the elevator with but the fabulous Moolah and Ernie mm. Roth. And wow. We're riding, we're riding up to whatever floors we were going. And, of course, I knew who – I recognized Moolah. I did not recognize uh, Roth right away. And, of course, I was a runny-nosed kid back then. But I, I did acknowledge Moolah. And uh, Roth said hello. It was very kind of just quiet. But later on, I had a, just such a great opportunity. I sat down, and I did have a chance to talk with Ernie Roth. And he was, he was so interested in the fact that I remembered him when he had wrestled or he had managed uh, – Magnificent Maurice and Johnny Barron, and he had wow. used the other names that he used the other names that he had, uh, Jay Wellington, Radcliffe. He goes, "How did you? How do you remember that?" You know, <laughs> and uh, of course, I told him that he'd been with the Sheik, and because I think in '72 he was already doing the for uh, the uh, Grand Wizard thing. Yeah, he but, was. Yeah, was uh, I believe it was '71. Uh, actually, I think yeah. it was uh, he brought in a, a beautiful Bobby and Jimmy Valiant uh, tag were a tag team in early yeah. early '71. I think that was the first. Um, those were the first uh, talent that he uh, came out as manager of, and and then of course he became so prominent in the East Coast and then in, in other territories. He was Abdullah Farouk. Right, and Jimmy Valiant was the other one that was at that Boston. Uh, convention that year and of course i remember jimmy when he got much of his early start here in the awa a few years before that when he was still jim Vallon. and so him yeah. and i had a chance to talk and jimmy he stayed a friend all through the years and i'll tell you we're still friends today uh the head and and but he's deep down he's a great guy i just uh i can't say anything bad about him absolutely good guy so how let's let's go back on this book now, John. You're, you're sitting around and, and you're thinking, okay, what am I going to do with uh, some time in my life here? And gee, I think I'll get a hold of Greg Oliver and we'll do a book. You know, how how do you reach that point? Well, how the process really started, and it was uh, really ironic uh, that I had, you know, put wrestling in the rearview mirror forever. I thought uh, when I left the business in 1996 and and started selling uh, advertising for a little local country music station on Long Island because uh, I had been I had been uh, through the mill. I had been I'd been um, chewed up and spit out in the wrestling business in the '90s <laughs> with everything on, uh, not only the scandals but uh, you know just uh, bringing Vince Russo into the business. And I mean, it was just it was just wearing me down. I was a promoter, and I I I, I left the business abruptly after losing an enormous amount of money on a show I was promoting. And uh, I, I basically went into radio sales. I loved country music and uh, excelled at that station, got hired away and moved uh, and worked in New York City at a big country music station. Then I was hired away to move to Nashville and uh, literally spent 20 years uh, in, the, in the music business. In 2018, I uh, sold my home in Franklin, Tennessee, and as I was, you know, preparing to move and you accumulate stuff over the years, there were boxes that were labeled wrestling. And I opened these boxes up and, you know, I see all of these archives that I had saved. And I saved literally everything. 
from all of the radio shows over, you know, five, six years of weekly radio shows, all of them there in great shape. Uh, all the 8-millimeter films I shot as a kid at Madison Square Garden in 1973. Uh, oh. The 10,000 photographs that I took as a ringside photographer in all the uh, Northeast Territories, uh, Garden, Nassau Coliseum, Boston Garden, Philadelphia TV tapes. So all of this stuff was there. And, uh, and even all the videotapes as a promoter that no one really had ever seen. So I had a, a, a really a treasure chest of stuff. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? And um, I, I called the WWE, and I talked to Ben Brown, who was in the archives division, and I met with him a couple of times, showed him some of the stuff that I had, and he really got very excited, but no, nothing ever came of it. You know, he was like, we got to do something with this stuff, but nothing ever happened. Uh, in uh, Around Thanksgiving of 2018, my nephew, uh, who is prominent in the book as well, uh, he's my best yeah. friend, my god, everything, uh, he is a big wrestling fan. I turned him on a wrestling when he was a little boy. And he uh, was fascinated uh, with Vince Russo uh, because Russo uh, I brought into the business, and we everybody knows about our public breakup and everything that happened. And Russo had written a book um, in, uh, called uh, – um, um, what the heck was the name of it? But he, he wrote a book called Forgiven, and uh, he, he wrote a chapter about me and was pretty disparaging, and I let it go. Uh, and, but then Russo had a podcast called um, uh, Truth with, Qu- with Consequences. And uh, he was on a show ranting about me, about how I was this guy who lived with his mother and I was this and that. And, and, I, and my nephew was like, hey, Uncle, um, Russo's talking about you on this podcast. And I heard it and I was like, you know what? Uh, he had made a challenge to anybody who had any disagreements with him, whether it was Dave Meltzer, Wade Teller, Bruce Mitchell. You could always talk to me on the podcast. I heard that, and I said, you know what? It's time. And I reached out to his producer, Matt Kuhn, and I said, listen, I want to take Vince up on that on that offer. Uh, I would like to have a face-to-face with him for the first time since we split in 1992. So uh, I said I will do it on one condition, if uh, we talk as gentlemen and that I'm not being set up because I had been disappeared from the wrestling business for so many years other than a couple of podcasts that I did. And uh, Kuhn agreed. And at the same time, I said, you know, what the heck, let me start a Twitter account. And I started one at John Arezzi on Twitter and uh, put up a couple of old pictures and people rem- people remembered who I was, and it, was, it kind of blew me away. So then I do the podcast with Russo. Uh, it's it's a live stream on on YouTube, and uh, we have a two uh, two and a half hour conversation. Uh, he cried he cried in this thing, um, and uh, it was a um, it, it it was an eye opener, and it got widely viewed by a lot of people. It, it was really the start of that resurgence in wrestling, not thinking that I'd ever really get back in. And then I started, you know, a lot of people have said, you've done so many things, you've had a couple of different identities, you should do a book. So uh, I actually, the first person I reached out to was uh, Tim Hornbaker. Oh, uh, yes. Because I was a fan of his, uh, you know, his writing. I had been reading, you know, I, I read books, a lot of books. And and uh, I reached out to Tim and... and uh, and he made the introduction to me to Michael Holmes at ECW Press. 
Mm-hmm. So I sent Russell an email just basically pitching my story, you know, that I was this, I was back, it was, I did all this in wrestling, I was in country music, I worked in baseball. And Michael returns the email the very same day and it says, wow, it's funny that you're, you know, you're writing me because I was just watching your YouTube conversation with Vince Russo. Oh, boy. And, and it was kind of serendipitous. And uh, then I had a conversation with Michael, and he says, well, you know, you're a first-time author. You really need to get somebody else aligned with you that would um, do this with you. And, uh, you know, Tim, I, I had a couple of conversations with him, but he was knee-deep in the Buddy Rogers book, and he had a lot mm-hmm. going on. Uh, but Michael then suggested um, a, a guy named Greg Oliver or a guy named Scott Keel, who has Crowbar Press, uh, sure. to do the book, and, and I was going to um, I was going to the Cauliflower Alley uh, reunion, and and uh, I talked to both of those guys there. Scott, I had knew Greg, I had never met, and uh, Greg basically um, told me, well, you know, I've done a lot of wrestling, but I don't really, you know, I'm not really that interested in another wrestling book, and. And uh, but we agreed to follow up on a on a phone conversation. And um, Michael basically told me if you could get one of these guys to work with you, I'll give you a book deal. And Greg, when I had that follow up conversation with him, when I told him my story, he was like, "Now, now we're talking. You know, uh, now we're talking the music business stuff, the baseball stuff. You growing up in Brooklyn and New York, and your." And he was like, I'm in. And so it, that deal came together really quickly after that. I met with Michael Holmes, WrestleMania weekend in 2019, and we met face-to-face for the first time. And a week later, he offered me a contract, and that's how the book happened. That's how the deal happened. That's, that's incredible in itself. And when you mentioned uh, Scott Teal and Greg Oliver, again, two guys that uh, we have, they're mutual friends. I've, I've known Scott for 50 years and uh one of the greatest guys in the world i've known greg for about 20 yeah so two of the best you know oh, in, yeah. in your book you talk about these different lives um i think what's interesting about it john is i'm a wrestling fan you're a wrestling fan a wrestling fan can relate to that but when you go outside of that and you say okay a little bit more about who you are and we realize when you throw in the country music and You've got some great stories in there. I hope you'll maybe just give us a teaser on some of them about Mm -hmm. working with some of the country music stars and how that all came about. And then later on, let's try to touch a little bit on the baseball because that's all three of these subjects are dear to my heart. I've lived them all and love them. And your book was so exciting for that reason. So let's talk about that country music uh, tie in there yeah. and how that all came yeah. about. And then there's a famous star that uh, I, when I read that you were part of her career and I went, wow. So let's, let's yeah. talk a little bit about them. Well, I mean, you got to start with baseball. I mean, you have to, because it leads into okay. the whole music. So here's the synopsis. I mean, I, my lifelong dream was to work for the New York Mets. I mean, that was my team growing up. I was a fan since my first game in 1966 and, I had my vision. I, I wanted to work for the Mets. And when I got out of college, uh, a friend of mine who I went to college with that told me about the baseball winter meetings, and that would be a good place for a job seeker. They have a job fair. And I went in 1980, and, uh, uh, you know, after uh, 
seeing a posting for uh, an opportunity in the minor leagues with the Mets, um, I uh, sought out the owner of the franchise, and uh, it took me a while to get to him during that winter meetings, but when I finally did corral him, uh, I sat down with him, and uh, 10 minutes later he offered me the job, uh, one of the jobs uh, in the sh- with Shelby, North Carolina, with the Class A affiliate of the New York Mets. So, uh, you know, here I go to North Carolina, New York guy, never been really down south for any extended period of time. So I'm working with the Mets, and one night I, uh, my, the general manager of the team and myself went to a little uh, dive bar in Shelby, which was a dry county, which meant that you couldn't even buy liquor. You would have to buy liquor at a store and then bring it into the club and then buy it back from them. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, so hmm. a, band, a, band, a band comes on the stage. A place was called the Stardust Lounge, and a a cover band takes the stage called Straight Up. And the female lead singer was incredible. I was like, what is this girl doing in this club? I mean, it was the type of club where you check your guns at the door. I mean, it was really, really a rough, rough crowd. And uh, But she was singing Pat Benatar and Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt and Journey, and, and I was just, I was just mesmerized by her. And uh, during one of the breaks, they were the house band there at this club. I introduced myself, and, and she introduced herself, and her name was Patty Loveless, or Patty Lovelace at the time. Right. And right. Uh, she was married to the drummer in the band named Terry, Lo- Terry Lovelace. And, uh, and I, I just was blown away. And I started going to that club every week uh, to see her, I mean, to listen to her, and then I got to know her, and... I was just like, what are you doing in this club? And uh, I said, you're a star. I mean, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, and then she told me a backstory where she was a teenager in Nashville. Uh, her brother brought her there. They had a duo called the Singing Ramies. Their maiden name was Ramey. And, uh, and then, you know, she was, uh, she was mentored by Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton. And she was the third or fourth cousin of Loretta Lynn. And she was signed by a a very historic duo called the Wilburn Brothers on a publishing deal yeah. Yeah. And, and signed to their road show. And, and, and she meets this much older guy uh, when she's 17 years old, and she marries him, and he takes her out of Nashville and takes her into this seedy world of rock and roll in North Carolina, and that's where I met her. So when I asked her, I said, well, you know, you're a star. You know, don't you have aspirations to do more than this? She goes, well, I'm married now. That dream is over. I was like, you're only 23. Sure. You're only three weeks older than me. And I said, what do you mean you're – I mean, you're 23 years old. So as I got to know her and I just kind of lost the passion, I loved the, loved the match, but I was like, I think I could do something with you and – um I, I left the job with the Mets to manage her, and I had no experience as a manager, and that's kind of how it started. And, uh, you know, Patty and I, uh, you know, we went up and down the road in 81. I took her out of that little CD club, and we started playing bigger cover clubs. And uh, But it was a, a lot of a tumultuous situation. There was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of drugs. There was – it was just – it was just not a good situation, uh, and uh, basically, I, it was on and off relationship with Patty as manager from 1980 uh, end of 81, middle 81, or wherever it was, till 84, 85. Uh, and uh, you know, we had parted ways, and um, uh, eventually, uh, her brother convinced her, you know, 
to go to Nashville uh, to finally give it a shot. And this is after mm-hmm. he and I had Esther. And I mean, it's just a whole complicated story. The book explains it a lot better than I can right now. So anyway, Patty gets a deal uh, with MCA Records, and I had nothing to do with that, getting her the deal. And when I found out, she called me and said she got signed by MCA Records, and I, and I knew, I said, I knew you were going to do that. You, I know you're going to be a star. That's when I moved back to New York, and I started listening to country radio, basically to hear her and uh, watching TNN to see her, the, the National Network, and that's why I really fell in love with country music. And uh, when, the wrestling, uh, when the wrestling stuff got to me and I had to get out of it, uh, I still love country music, and that's when I got the job at this little radio station on Long Island. And that's how I started meeting uh, some record executives because we were a reporting station. So, uh, you know, the, the labels would bring artists there, and I'd start to meet label people. And, and then uh, I started taking some trips down to Nashville to generate some income for the station through advertising and some promotions. So it was kind of developing relationships along the way, and and eventually it led to me moving to Nashville in July of 2000 to open up the offices for Great American Country. Uh, and, and that's where I really started to network and excel and help market many of the country artists that were breaking at that time. So that's kind of, that's kind of how that happened. I find it interesting as I, as I was looking through that portion of the book, John, how and this is not by any means a bad thing, but at times it sounded like you were, you were a, a man who c- could have been out of your league, but you always excelled and, and made sure that you were going to do better than maybe expected to do. And you did. And you excelled and, and you know, came out a winner in the end. Uh, and that's the, that's the way I read it. It, it. Would that be a pretty good assessment? Yeah, I would guess. I mean, I, I've never been afraid, for whatever reason, to blow the house up and start again. So, right, uh, you and know, that's exactly baseball, what I mean. You weren't afraid to take yeah. the chance. No, no, I, I had never, I never got married, uh, which probably had a lot to do with it, uh, because I, you know, and I had this rough upbringing in New York, and I just wanted a better life for myself than what was, um, you know, than than what was uh, not handed to me, but what I inherited in my family life and. I just wanted to do different things, and I always had—I was only always a loner, and I was always uh, pretty inward. Uh, but uh, there were times, you know, eventually that I just started to uh, feel invincible that I could do anything. And and even though there were a lot of uh, down uh, downsides to the things that I did in wrestling, and I was never afraid to give it another shot and do something else. And and um, and literally, when I changed my name to John Alexander when I went into country music. It was kind of putting even John Arezzi in the rear view. Uh, I really kind of reinvented mm-hmm. myself. And then moving to Nashville, it's all about relationships and helping. You know, if you could prove to a label or a management company, uh, and the company that I was with gave me really freedom just to be creative and, and do whatever I needed to do to generate revenue for that company, uh, I was able to do some pretty cool things and, and, and do things with a lot of people. And, and I always uh, – the, the wrestling business taught me – that um, uh, and the wrestling business is a hard business, and, it, and it's filled with people that, or you know, a lot of them are not very, you know, what's the word? Um, it's it, you're dealing with a lot of people who work you, and um, yes. and I was kind of becoming that person. I didn't like who I was, 
I, I was I was very unhappy with myself. I didn't like myself. And and when uh, I got out of wrestling and I got that opportunity to work at this, this radio station on Long Island, I just I just really literally dropped on my knees and prayed to God. And I was like, boy, if you give me another shot, I will always uh, under promise, always deliver, always do the right thing by anybody I do business with. And and ever since that day, things got better for me because it was always about super serving the people that you do business with and always making sure that the relationship, whether it was a business relationship, a friendship, uh, professional association, uh, that uh, you do the right thing by people and you, do, and you go above and beyond what, what it takes uh, to make sure that at the end of the day, it's like this guy's a good guy, he's an honest guy, and he and he really did it. He really did us well, and that's what happened in Nashville. And I got a good reputation almost immediately. Well, and you were you were at different radio stations too throughout uh, your career. Yeah, I mean, uh, before the country music part of it, I, you know, I, I I basically started working in radio while I was in college. Uh, I interned for a, a sports talk station, WITS. Uh, and once I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I was uh, hired by them uh, full time as a uh, uh, a producer for a couple of talk shows. And uh, and but there was really no money in it. I mean, it was minimum wage, and I was working very hard, and there was really not a lot of room for advancement. And uh, I was always amb- I was always very ambitious. I was always somebody uh, which, to a fault, I think, I was always looking to uh, you know to to, to run a company or to to just keep excelling on a very accelerated pace. Not I wanted things to happen yesterday, so I, I moved around a lot. And 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 after the Patty situation, I went back to Long Island and I started working in WNYG Radio, which uh, I had a long relationship with as a salesperson, doing sports, and then eventually Pro Wrestling Spotlight landed there in '89. But I worked for several stations in the Long Island market. Uh, uh, so yeah, my radio background was pretty vast. I did a lot of things in radio. <laughs> and then the, the baseball tie-in, did, did that come back to you after some of the radio stuff? Uh, well, here's the thing. I mean, I still, you know, when the Patty, uh, when I left, uh, for the first time in North Carolina, when, uh, you know, it just wasn't working out and I moved back to New York in 82, I still then at that point said, maybe it's time for me to try to get it. Uh, job with the big team, even though I spent only a year in the minor leagues, and I had some relationships that I uh, had a few interviews with the Mets, and uh, I had made an impression on uh, a guy named Al Harrison, who at the time I believe was the general manager of the Mets in the early 80s, and and he liked me, and I interviewed for a uh, job. They were just putting up this Diamond Vision screen, which was the you know the big visual scoreboard, and I came in second for that job. Uh, but he liked me. He said, you just don't have enough video experience. And so he introduced me to uh, Major League Baseball Productions. And uh, I interviewed there, and I got uh, hired as uh, someone to work on the TV show This Week in Baseball as a production assistant and a viewer. Uh, So I'd watch baseball games all day and and write the highlights down, time code them, and then hand them to the producers, and, and then Mel Allen would do the show. Uh, but the money was really minimal, and once again, I was always looking for, uh, you know, to to earn as much as I could and, and sometimes not be patient enough. So I left the Major League Baseball job uh, within a matter of months because I was just, I was impatient. 
so that's mm-hmm. where baseball came and left, and um, and and then you know I, I carried on with the other things in my life. But uh, baseball to this day is still a passion, and ironically, uh, the working title, the, the the name I wanted to call the book, uh, which was uh, not accepted by ECW Press for a good reason. I wanted to call it, I should have stayed in baseball. That was the title that I wanted to use. And, okay. and Michael Holmes and the team were like, well, man, this is, you know, you, you're known more for wrestling than anything else. And we got to market it to the wrestling audience. So uh, Matt memories, it was. I always, I've learned that uh, not all book titles that we want are the book titles that we get. I, um, True. I didn't get the book title I wanted for my book. And, uh, I listened to the press, and it was a good idea what they did, and it worked out. So I guess they know more than we do sometimes. Let's let's Absolutely. give a little plug here. The book, we're talking with John Arezzi, John Alexander, the uh, Matt Memories, My Wild Life in Pro Wrestling Country Music and with the Mets. And this is a, boy, it's a roller coaster ride in the book. As I went through the chapters, I, I was I was up and down. I said, this is good. This is bad. This is wild. I love this man. This is awesome what you did. And I, I, I guess I applaud you the way you, you chronicled everything and it all come back and fit together. And uh, I would certainly encourage anyone who is just a wrestling fan or if you've uh, been a fan of the old school era, um, you could be a fan of today's product. This this is a good story. It's kind of a uh, just a, a life of probably so many of us out there, and you've got it all in print in this great book, and uh, just a great, great book. You um, Give us a plug real quick, John, how to get the book for those that are interested. Sure, and uh, even before I do that, I mean, uh, uh, just another thing that I, I certainly need to bring up, is uh, the podcast that I do with uh, Brian Last. I mean, Brian yes. uh, was was a listener of mine, and then he created this Arcadian Vanguard Network with Jim Cornette and so many others who c- cover the history of the show, and Brian is a historian. Uh, he uh, approached me, and when I told him I had all of my uh, pro wrestling spotlight radio shows still from back in the day, he suggested we do a podcast, and uh, we started in 2019 and now it's become uh, a, a weekly podcast that's listened to by thousands of people. And it's called Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now, pwspod.com. And what we do in chronological order, we review the show I did 30 years ago. And, uh, wow. we, and we go over the Pro Wrestling Spotlight from back then. It was a groundbreaking show. Uh, from all the insiders. It was a really first inside the business wrestling radio show. And now we go back 30 years each week and we review them. And we talk about the backstories, the guests. We're in the Herb Abrams era right now, which is really fascinating. Oh, to a it's lot so of people. good. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, so I have to give a plug to that before anything else. And, and, and that's uh, pwspod.com, myself and Brian Last, each and every week, Pro Wrestling Spotlight, then and now. Um, and I do a Pro Wrestling Spotlight live on Facebook and YouTube now. It's at John Arisi's Matt Memories. Just look for that channel on YouTube or on Facebook, and each and every week live at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturdays, I am live on the air, and we reminisce, and we bring on guests, and we uh, talk about the business. But getting to the book, uh, you can get the book. Uh, it's, uh, it's 
out uh, April 6th officially, although uh, people like Barnes & Noble are already shipping them out, and Amazon be- is beginning to ship them. Uh, I think they've already exhausted their supply, which is great. Um, and uh, if you want an autographed copy of Matt Memories, a signed and numbered edition of it, all you got to do is send me an email, john at mattmemories.com, and I'll be more than happy to uh, to get a signed and numbered book out to you. But uh, Amazon is a way to get it, Walmart.com, Barnes & Noble, any major book retailer, any major big box outlet, uh, the book is out there and readily available. The audio version comes out May 11th. Uh, on Audible and the other platforms, and there'll be uh, an audio version on CD. Uh, I, I recorded the audio book a few weeks back in Nashville. So uh, yeah, it's out there, and I'm very excited about the release. And and uh, I really thank you guys for uh, bringing me here today and to talk about it. I want you to. Uh, we want to bring Glenn on uh, on the air here a little bit. I know he's probably got a couple sure. of questions or something he wants to Absolutely. cover. So let's do that. Oh, I'm, sure, sure. Thank you. I'm good with. Right on. Thank you, John. And uh, you mentioned, and I was going to uh, bring this up too, uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now uh, with Brian Last, the, the podcast that you do. I am, I'm a weekly listener. I got to get into the Patreon stuff. I just got to make time because that's the one thing I can never have enough of is time. But I listen, I definitely make time to listen to your weekly program. And I am just, a, I love it when, you know, it is so cool to go back and the way you do the uh, regular show, uh, you know, you, the recap show with Brian. It, it's really Really got me to know uh, a few of the, the personalities that were uh, around uh, your area back uh, in those uh, days at um, working at WNYG. And uh, yeah, I never heard so much about and so much of the Power Twins in my whole damn life. Oh my God, I, I'm maxed <laughs> out. <huh? laughs> They're amazing. Those guys are just uh, the way they are on the air is the way they are off the air. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they are. Great guys, really, in a, in a lot of ways, but they are they are rude. They're always in gimmick. They're always in gimmick. <laughs> uh, but they are so fascinating, and they're so, in a way, lovable. Yeah. Uh, just the way they carry themselves. And, um, you know, identical twins. You can't tell them apart. And uh, they're just amazing guys. They're just funny guys. Well, yeah, and it's so fun to hear them. And and, and, and I know some of those shows, I mean, just being a guy running who, you know, in the radio business, I mean, running a board and, and trying to host and trying to keep a show uh, on the tracks and having a couple of guys like, uh, you know, those two. Uh, I mean, my God, I, I could just like almost see your hair almost turning a big fright of gray because those guys were, yeah. those guys definitely tested you on some many, many weeks. And there were some weeks I could definitely tell that, you you were almost there. You were almost ready to to, to, to just get to that one last point that they were going to make, that you were going to give them the business, man. I, it's just so amazing that you did in some weeks. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, they tested my patience uh, on, on many occasions. And, uh, but hey, these guys are like, you know, they were six foot four and they were like 300 pounds each. And, you know, they, you didn't know if they were working you or if they were shooting with you. Yeah, and it's that, that those guys are fascinating. Us uh, having listening to Sonny Blaze, a guy I remember uh, doing the honors on a lot of WWF television when, it, when, when you know back in the early '90s. But another guy who was on in the early going, and he he wasn't uh, he ended up uh, leaving us uh, through some cir- circumstances. And a guy that kind of gets forgotten, but I, I'm fascinated with East Coast is Mark Tendler. And the, in those early episodes of uh, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight, uh, then and now, uh, he was making appearances as 
as well. And uh, again, there's another guy in that story of uh, East Coast Indies of the 80s and then moving into the 90s. Yeah, Mark was an interesting guy. I mean, he was involved with a lot of unscrupulous people. Uh, he was murdered, as uh, most people know. Um, it, and he was, uh, he was a fascinating individual. And he was a, he was a worker. He was, he was always trying to get over on you. And, and uh, I did, uh, in the very beginning of the show, uh, bring him on and promote what he was doing. And he had a wrestling school. And, uh, but he was, uh, he was somebody that um, lived a very dangerous life, and it caught up with him uh, with the eventual murder outside of uh, a, a strip club on Long Island. Yeah, that that's a story that uh, you know you have in the annals of pro wrestling history. It doesn't get a lot of press, you know. But I mean, it was very, very unfortunate. Uh, I want to just mention a little bit. I mean, your show also, your radio show, was one of the the places that really was a place to showcase and have him on. And you had him on many times, and he went on to so many great things. Was was Mick Foley? I mean, you know, having that Long Island connection, but uh, having him on those shows and listening to some of the stuff in the day, you really could tell there was something there with him their wheels were turning because he was really starting to sort of cultivate that personality and i mean having uh you know mick foley be a part of it was another like a big good good memory there have to be some great memories of just being around mick Uh, i mean he did the forward for your book and all yeah he's uh probably the the best friend uh in the wrestling business that i had and sonny blaze introduced me to him in 1989 and he was Cactus Jack Manson at the time and just leaving the uh, uh, Texas Territory. And, and so Sonny brought him in, and I just turned the mic on, and I let him go. And he really, uh, to this day, he talks about that he used the pro wrestling spotlight over the years to really develop his promo skills. And he called them, uh, you know, the promo skills part of his uh, muscle memory. So he would, uh, and he really starts to transition into the uh, the Cactus Jack, the Mick Foley uh, promo machine that we know today through Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And it really ironically starts to happen in 1991, which we're now beginning to cover on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. But he was a regular guest. Anytime he wanted to come on, I'd let him come on. Uh, he'd come on our bus trips. We'd go to shows, uh, to some independent shows or WCW or whatever in the area. He'd drive the bus with us. And my friendship with him was just uh, amazing. Uh, and what a great individual, uh, philanthropic person, uh, just one of the nicest individuals that you'd ever want to meet. And uh, I've never heard anything say a bad thing about him. And to this day, Uh, I consider him a dear friend. And when he agreed to write the forward to the book, and I had to send him a manuscript first of the very first rendition of Matt Memories. And once he read it, he was like, I'm in. I'd love it. And and, uh, and then he wrote uh, one of the three forwards in the book. But Mick is a class guy, and I love him to death. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, your show, it, it just, it, it was so cool because not only that uh, you, you had, you were really putting together a real credible, smart radio show, a uh, pro wrestling radio show at that time. And it really evolved through the, through your stints at various stations. But I mean, one of the things that also kind of came out at, as a side thing that became a, a big thing was getting involved with um, the meet and greets that eventually became uh, these big weekends with the legends. Uh, I mean, this was 
was another thing that was another avenue of your life. And it started while uh, you were starting the early days here on NYG. Uh, it started with what a, a simple little meet and greet with Ricky Steamboat. And it really uh, kind of got your wheels rolling too into some uh, other endeavors that you had took on partners with through the years. Let's talk about how that evolved. Yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, going back to baseball, I was always a big baseball fan, and I loved going to baseball card shows and meeting some of the legends of baseball. And I always wondered why there was nothing like that in pro wrestling. Uh, so uh, when I did my first little appearance with Ricky Steamboat, and we we went, we was at a plumbing company, <laughs> uh, and uh, Ricky had agreed they paid a, a personal appearance fee, and the lines were out the door, the, the massive crowd that showed up. I was like, there's something here. And then I decided to do it on a bigger scale, which turned into the very first of its kind uh, wrestling convention. This is so unlike what the WFIA did, because this was modeled after baseball card shows. You bring legends in, you bring some top stars in uh, to sign autographs, you bring vendor tables in, and and that's how the first convention came about. Uh, financially, I brought in some partners, um, and uh, we did Wrestling Fans Fantasy Weekend is what I called it in uh, the summer of 1990. And my first headliner was Sting, who had just won for the first time the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. So I always had a, uh, I always had a keen eye for, like, who would be the hot commodity for an event like that. And Sting was the guy, and then Cactus Jack, Ricky Steamboat, uh, Bruno San Martino uh, in the first one, um, and, and a few others, you know. So it, it was a. It proved to me that this was a business model that uh, uh, would be successful. And uh, I did annual conventions uh, starting in 1990, and the last one I did was in '93. Uh, each one was unique, and each one had some amazing talent there, amazing legends. When you bring guys like Ric Flair in for his first ever convention and then you bring the original Sheik in for his first and only autograph signing uh it was uh, it was quite it was quite uh, an experience for me to get involved in that and i did a lot of other smaller little one-on-one -on -one personal appearances whether it was at a bowling alley with jim neidhart and uh and uh jim neidhart and davy boy smith or um, you know missy hyatt i mean there were just so many that i did and now, you know, you look at the business and you see uh, pre-pandemic anyway, mm. wrestling convention literally every weekend somewhere around the country. So uh, that business model uh, proved to be successful. And it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, how large these things had, had become. And when I got back into wrestling, I couldn't believe that how many and how many huge conventions were taking place out there. And you can just think about it simply enough back to that innocent time uh, you brought the dragon to the plumber, and the people came. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They did. They came out for it. Oh, boy. And, you know, and if only uh, they could have heard the stories of you negotiating with Bonnie, it would have been just a fantastic time. Ah, yeah, Bonnie was a tough cookie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at yeah. that. Uh, Ricky, I, Ricky, Ricky adhered to whatever she said, 
And uh, that was it. My negotiations were always with Bonnie. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about one, one or two more things here before we uh, let you go today. And uh, uh, it was just over the weekend it was announced uh, the passing of Barry Orton. Now, Barry Orton was one of the of uh, a few ex wrestlers that was involved with one of the ver- some of the various scandals in the early uh, late eighties, early nineties with the World Wrestling Federation. And I just bring it up because you uh, in your book you talk about uh, covering these scandals and and stuff and how you eventually ended up getting into to with the WWF wanting you to cover them and, and visiting with Vince. And let's just talk about that because it just remi- reminded me of, of the, the, you know, the various scandals, the Ring Boy scandals, the stuff with Terry Garvin, Mel Phillips, etc. But talk about how you covered it too. I mean, that was a lot. That was some pretty heavy stuff that really uh, brought more, you know, even more validity to what you were doing as, uh, you know, with the radio programs. Yeah, it was a very tumultuous time, uh, put it lightly. And it really started when I brought Billy Graham on to talk about the uh, uh, talk about what steroids did to him, and we did an hour-long radio interview. And um, it, it, and then lo and behold, before you know it, Doctor Zaharian is arrested by the feds, and uh, and the, the the steroid scandals just break. And I and I'm covering it. I'm at the trial. I'm reporting on it for mainstream radio. I mean, I really got knee deep into it, and I had. Uh, you know, uh, it's it just, it's in the book. I mean, but then it led to the sex scandals. And, uh, you know, when Tom Cole, uh, yeah. you know, accused Mel and Terry and, and, uh, and then it led to others coming out and, and then it turned into a media circus and, uh, with the Donahue show and everybody on the Donahue show and Barry O was on that show. And, and and that was really after that he really couldn't get a job back in wrestling when he when he brought up the allegations against Patterson and um, Terry Garvin in the car with uh, him and uh, Tom Cole I mean here's a guy that just took his own life not too long ago I don't know how Barry died I don't know if that's been reported yet I don't know what those circumstances were but uh, here's a guy uh, who uh, something bad happened to him. Uh, back in the day with his association as a ring boy with Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin. And, uh, and it's just sad. It's just sad what, uh, what happened, but I was knee deep in it. And I was uh, in the middle of it with uh, Phil Muchnick, who was reporting on it for the New York post. And uh, it was just, I became known as the guy that was, you know, on breaking a lot of these stories and uh, covering this business, like it had never been covered before. And it was uh, it, it, it was not a happy time. It was you know you, you're reporting on something that could take the business that you're in down uh, if these allegations were proven. And uh, to this day, I mean, 30 years later, uh, after uh, Tom Cole commits suicide, and now we hear about the unfortunate death of Barry O. It uh, it's sad. I mean, Cole had reached out to me when I got back into business and. Uh, he had said that I was one of the only people that ever treated him with dignity and respect, and and uh, he was a listener to the podcast. and And then after Patterson died, you know, his uh, his life turned again. And it's a big, you know, it's a big. Uh, can't get too deep into it, but um, mm-hmm. that was a that was a that was a really bad time. Yeah, real, real heavy time, and I got I got to end my segment here and wrap things up with something a little bit lighter. You know, uh, the regular season for Major League Baseball is starting, and I know you are an avid fan, huge Mets fan. 
I have to wonder because 1991 was the, it's going to be the 30th anniversary of the Minnesota Twins winning the World Series. I'm going to ask you for your expert advice here, what your thoughts were on the trade that kind of helped the Minnesota Twins get that second world championship. What were your thoughts on Frank Viola, the Frank Viola, Kevin Tappany, David West, and a few other players deal? Because, I mean, at the time we were, it's Twins fans, oh, that was a heartbreaker because we thought we were going to have Viola for a few more years of sweet music. (laughs) But what is your thoughts? Because we ended up getting a couple of guys that really helped us get a world championship. So I want to just get some baseball and some baseball out of you, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that trade when we got Viola, I mean, you know, he certainly wasn't the pitcher he was uh, with Minnesota. Um, But uh, the Mets have always had this history of uh, making the worst trades in the history of baseball. And that was one of them. You you got a couple of great young stars and uh, that helped you win a world championship. And the Mets got a guy that was, uh, was going downhill uh, so, uh, Frank Vail was a great guy, but we, we certainly didn't get him in his prime, you know, and you could go back to Nolan Ryan, uh, getting traded from the Mets for Jim Fergosi. You could go to so many examples that the New York Mets are snake bitten and, um, uh, but I am hooked. I always will be just got back from spring training where I was there for a week watching them like I do every year. Um, so I, I love baseball and I love talking baseball. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's part of my DNA. And I know it is part of George's as well. Well, I was going to, I was going to chime in there and say, you know, John, uh, aside from wrestling and old cars, I love old cars, but baseball, major league baseball has always been a, on the front burner for myself and my wife. And I, um, I don't know if you have, John, but I have had the opportunity to visit all 30 national or major league ballparks, all 30 of them, plus all of the old parks that uh, were before the current ones. And it is something that uh, I never set out to do, but it was something I enjoyed doing, going around and uh, seeing each new ballpark for what they offer and the way they present baseball, and it's a lot of fun. So if you haven't done that yet, uh, put it on your bucket list. It's a lot of fun. Right now, I need to get to Houston because they do have a new ballpark, and uh, yeah, it's only a year too old here. That's the one I need to get to now. But I have been to all of them, and all I've of been the to previous Min- ones. Talking about Minute Maid Park. Um, say that again. Are you talking about Minute Maid Park in Houston? Uh, yeah, yeah, because I've been at, at that one. Uh, so you gotta okay. go see it. It's a great park. I, I've been to a yeah. lot of ballparks, not as many as you. Uh, but I certainly have been to a, a, a good majority of them uh, to see the Mets play uh, in the National League, and uh, I've been to several uh, American League parks as well. I mean, yeah, that's uh, that's a good uh, goal to hit every single Major League park. I mean, that's uh, that is on the bucket list. Well, it isn't really. It wasn't ever set out to be a goal. I can tell you that it was just something that we enjoyed doing, and we yeah. get together during the summer and put a put a series of ball clubs together and either fly or drive or however we could work it out. And before you know it, you know, we've got uh, all the ballparks in. And, and of course, when the new ballpark opens up, well, hey, we got to go there. And so we've been doing that for the last 30 years now. And, uh, yeah, it is is coming up on 30 years. And 92 was the first time I I took a road trip to to Cleveland. What did we do? Cleveland, Detroit, Cincinnati uh, in 92. That was a trip we took. And, that kind of got us going on it. So, well, hey, John, I want to wish you the best of luck, continued luck on this great book, Matt Memories. Get on Amazon, 
go to Walmart, Barnes and Noble, whatever you, wherever you can find it. It is definitely a good read. It's a fun ride in the book. And I am so thrilled that you're doing well with it and that you had an opportunity to come on with us. And I wish you the best, my friend. Thank you. I, pre- I really appreciate your time. And thank you both. I mean, this has been a pleasure for me. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM.